Hi, my name is George Sinclair. I'm the lead pastor of Church of the Messiah. It is uh, wonderful that you would like to check out the, some of the sermons done by Church of the Messiah, either by myself or some of the others. Uh, listen, just a couple of things. First of all, would you pray for us uh, that uh, we will uh, open God's word well uh, to his glory and for the good of people like yourself? Uh, the second thing is, um, if you aren't connected to a church and if you are a Christian, we really, I would really like to encourage you to find a, a good local church where they believe the Bible, uh, they preach the gospel, and if you have some trouble finding that, uh, send us an email. Uh, we will do what we can to help connect you uh, with a good local church wherever you are. And um, if you're a non-Christian checking us out, we're really, really, really glad uh, you're doing that. Uh, don't hesitate to send us questions. Uh, it helps me actually to know as I'm preaching how to deal with the types of things that you're really struggling with. So God bless. Father, we um, <clears throat> confess before you, because uh, we're sort of in a bit of a, a good space. We confess before you, Father, that, it is, uh, that, that we are prone to sometimes see specks in other people's eyes and not notice the log in our own eyes, uh, that we are sometimes not at all self-aware of who we are. We thank you, Father, that your word is both a mirror that helps us to see ourselves, a light that helps us to see ourselves, and it's also a window, and that by your light we can look out that window and learn more of you and more of ourselves. So, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would gently bring your word deeply into our hearts this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, some of you know that I was uh, a priest, a presbyter in the um, Anglican Church of Canada for, uh, for over 22 years. And um, one of the things that uh, you, you did as a, a presbyter is you'd have a meeting once a month called Clericus. It was where all of the uh, clergy in a certain region uh, would get together. Uh, you'd do that like uh, you wouldn't meet in July and August and maybe not meet in, in uh, December or something like that. So, you know, it'd be eight, nine, ten times a year. And uh, when I was in Ottawa Centre, that was uh, where I was last, uh, you might wonder what did we do uh, when we all got together once a month. Well, what we did, uh, or what happened, is they mainly talked about politics. Uh, and namely, at the time, about how bad the government was or how bad this policy was or whatever. And uh, they probably would have said, I, I didn't join in very much. I was usually in a minority position when it came to what they thought was uh, terrible or what they thought was spectacularly good. Uh, they would have seen it as being, of course, prophetic and biblical and, you know, blah, blah, woof, woof. But um, that's what we talked about. You know, we didn't talk about the Bible. Or if we did, it would quickly veer into political issues of the day. I, I mention this because... Uh, the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, if I'm not careful with myself, I could talk a lot about politics. This would be one of those texts that could be used as a springboard to talk about all sorts of political things. And uh, given that a lot of the people in this room have political opinions, it might very well be that in coffee time afterwards, you can talk about some of these political things, but you can pray that I don't. Uh, that we'll look at some other things in the text uh, which are uh, very important. But by the way, the, the, anyway, well, let's look at the text. So if you um, have your Bibles, it's uh, Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 17 and following. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and following. And uh, what's just happened, uh, you know, there was a, we spent several weeks, a story of uh, God uh, uses, uh, you know, Peter and John uh, 
have a man healed in the name of Jesus who's never been able to walk. It draws a crowd. They do a sermon. They go and they get thrown in jail. They get let out. They, um, you know, and then after they get let out, they tell everybody about what happened. And the congregation, rather than being frightened, is encouraged. The people. And then last week we looked at the terrifying story of God striking Ananias and Sapphira dead. Um, and, but despite that, that the church grew. And now this is the next story. Now. Um, the book of Acts is an eyewitness-based uh, history of the first 30-some-odd years of uh, the, Christ- the Christmas the Christ- Christmas movement, uh, the Jesus movement. Um, and uh, we don't know how long after the last event this event happened. It might have just been a couple of weeks. It might have been a couple of months. Um, most scholars think that the person that we now know of is Paul, but at the time was called Saul, and we're going to meet him uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks. Um, that he probably became a Christian probably in the year 34. It might be 35, might even be the end of 33. It part, depends a little bit on when the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus happened, whether it was the year 30 or 33. But if, if uh, Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead in the year 33, then you know maybe within about a year of that, Paul becomes a Christian. And so this, we know that this isn't like two or three or four or five years after because Paul is still not in the picture, but a couple of months later, it's not specific, this particular event happens, and here's how it goes. Verse 17. Uh, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Now, just a a couple of things here. I I, I read a lot of um, novels with cops and and all of that, and uh, one of the things they talk about in those American novels, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, is this idea of the perp walk. And uh, if you don't know what a perp walk is, there's two different versions of it. Uh, But what happens is if the police want to embarrass you, or somebody in the police, you know, community wants to embarrass you. It would be as if they were going to uh, arrest me for some reason. And uh, they don't want to just arrest me. They don't want to pull up to my house at 10 o'clock at night and arrest me uh, just privately. They'd come into the service. And not only would they come into the service to arrest me, they'd make sure that Global News and CTV and CFRA and other groups like that knew that I was going to be arrested and the reporters would be all there. Or after I'd been charged as I'm leaving the court after having been charged, uh, the police would have leaked to people that I'm being uh, let, let, uh, when I'm leaving so that the press could take pictures of me. And it's a, a way to, uh, to further embarrass the people who've been charged, uh, type of a power play. And that's what's going on here. It's, it's more obvious in the original language uh, that it's not just that they arrest the apostles and put them uh, in jail, but they do it in a very public way to show their power. Now, a couple of things that are going on here in the text, and it's one of the reasons that Canadians have a hard time with understanding books like Acts and what's just happened is, um, well, I think if you were to look, I bet that Gaza, under Hamas, has laws. I bet they're all written down. I bet if you went to Syria and you looked, they have laws. How many people think that Hamas cares what the laws say? (laughs) Or in Syria, that they care what the laws say? Or in China, and I could keep naming countries. The fact of the matter is that there might be laws, but the real law is that the powerful do whatever they want. 
And if you piss off the powerful, they'll arrest you. That's, in fact, how it is for the majority of the people who live on this planet today. And it's how most people throughout history have lived. Where basically, if you upset the powerful, they'll arrest you. Doesn't matter what the laws are. And that's what's going on here. They're powerful people. The apostles, representing the Christians, are massively, massively, massively bothering them. In fact, it's even more than that in a moment. And so they just go ahead and arrest them. And one of the things that we have problems with when we look at it, we think, okay, well, what law did they break? In fact, even when I read commentaries, they talk about whether they've broken law. No, no, you guys don't understand it. They, they didn't break any laws. <laughs> they just said, you, you're not allowed to do this. Why? Well, you're not allowed to do this. The why is because I'm the boss. That's why. And because I'm the boss, you're not allowed to do it. Like, it's as simple as that. It doesn't matter what the laws say. Now, what this says here in this particular text so here, that, that's the world they're living in. So it's very likely that, for instance, we might have a bit of a problem with it. And if we have commentators writing from our perspective, they try to look at what laws might or might not have been broken. And I'm reading them and think, you guys don't know anything. You know, I, I'm, I can be opinionated when I'm reading commentaries. I just think to myself, I bet a commentator in China wouldn't ask that question because they just know how the world works. But, but here's the other part, and it's really important for the rest of the story. You'll notice again in in verse uh, 17, they were filled with jealousy. Now, um, that word in the original language is sort of a, it includes three or a couple of different areas, and there's no really proper English word for it. It's a sort of a rare word. It only occurs one other place in the New Testament. What it's talking about is religiously or ideologically motivated rage. Religiously or ideologically motivated rage. They're not just jealous. They are consumed with rage. And the rage is driven by religious and or ideological purposes. Another way to understand it is that they are filled with a punitive zeal. They are filled with zeal to punish Another way to understand it is they have been consumed with fierceness of indignation. Another way to understand it is they are filled with envy, an envy that wants to punish. And that's what's all being captured uh, with this simple word jealousy, but what's there in the original language. Now, this is, uh, this is very, very... Um, This is a profound human problem. And it's made worse when you have power. It doesn't matter whether it's political power, social power, religious power, cultural power, family power, uh, maybe a power of a husband over a wife, or in some cases a wife over a husband. Um, And and so what what, what is envy? Envy um, Envy is one of those sins that we don't often recognize that we have, and it's not talked about very much in our culture. It's sort of um, a perversion of good ambition. So good ambition would be, um, you know, one of you is a lawyer, and uh, you look at some other lawyer, and you just marvel at how skilled she is. And you think to yourself, I'd love, like that, she's such a good lawyer. 
Like the way she handles questions, her knowledge of the case law, that her knowledge of the law, the way she handles things, the way she handles things in court. I'd love to be a lawyer like that someday. Or maybe somebody in the civil service and you, you, know, you see your boss's boss's boss and you see how they handle meetings and how they handle conflict and how they handle staff. Uh, and you say to yourself, you know, I'd, I'd really like to be like that. I'd really like to be like him someday. I, you know, and, you know, maybe even, you know, could I call them or talk to them or, and maybe get some pointers? Envy sees somebody who's getting something that they don't have, has a position or applause or skills that I don't have when I'm being envious. And I say, rather than saying, I'd sure like to be like that person someday. You know, for me, it would be like, I'd really like to be able to preach like that man or lead like that man or counsel like that, that person. But instead, I look at that person and I say, I'm just as good as him. I'm just as good as her. And the fact that I think I'm just as good as them and they're getting those things that I don't have fills me with envy. And at the heart of envy, I want to bring them down. I want to knock them down, not just one a peg or two peg. I'd love to see them humiliated can get to the point where I'd, I'd like to see them lose everything. You see, it's not even a zero-sum thing that I could take their position and they could be down. It wouldn't matter if I get any type of position or get any better as long as they get destroyed, as long as they get completely and utterly you know, gone. And, and those are very powerful things, and, and obviously those are extreme things, but it's what envy can grow into. And, 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 it's, and so what we see here, it's in a sense a combination of envy and anger, and, and anger is the same type of thing. And, and one of the things about both envy and anger is that one of the reasons there's such profound human problems is we often don't recognize them in ourselves. I, I've had talks with people who have been angry, and gosh, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to figure out that they're angry. Their face is red, they're gripping the seat or whatever, you know, or maybe their hands are shaking and you say, you know, I, th- I think you're angry. They say, no, I'm not, <laughs> in a really angry way. I yell it right back at you. No, I'm not angry, you know. By the way, I'm, I'm, I always recognize my envy and my anger, and I'm, I'm just joking. I'm, uh, you, know, he, you know, here's the thing about this text, which is so powerful, and it's, if you remember this, especially for the book of Acts, but all the way through narratives, is that the book of Acts, every text in the book of Acts is both a mirror and a window. It's a mirror and a window. It's a way to see ourselves, but it's also a way to see hope, to see who God is. And, 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 and it's always both at the same time. And what we need to understand, and, and one of the reasons that the Bible uh, and the biblical, one of the reasons I love Christianity, it's so beautiful and it's so powerful, is that the Bible doesn't other other people. So it's not here, the, the way to interpret this text is not to say, oh yeah, look at those bad people, look at those bad people, we're the good people, look at those bad people, that's what happens when you have power, that, you know, look at those, you know, whatever, look at those Jewish people, or look at those millionaires, or those billionaires, or those deputy ministers. No. The fact of the matter is, is that when we're reading the text of the story, we're not just to say how bad these people in power are, we are to ask ourselves, is it me, Lord? Like, do I have an anger problem? Do I have an envy problem? I might think that I'm concerned with justice. I'm concerned with uh, 
I'm, I'm concerned with the, well, the good running of the organization, but is it in fact that I'm, I'm, that's not really the case, that so what really is going on is that I have envy, and I would be just as happy if things didn't work very well as long as that person gets kicked out of their position. Is that me? And, and the text doesn't just dump on you. You see, that's what was so wonderful, that the, when you read the biblical narratives and you read them in light of the gospel, then you see, because on one hand, I am sometimes these people. I, I am sometimes angry and, and envious. And I am sometimes blind to it. But I'm also sometimes like the apostles. You see, and that's why the thing which is so powerful about these biblical narratives is that they, when you understand them as a mirror and a window, and when as you read them in light of the gospel, the comfort that the gospel gives you, you, you can look at, at those different aspects of yourself and not just get caught in othering people or just patting yourself on the back as if you're just unbelievably brilliant all of the time, and, and that's just the way it has to be. We're both. But, but what's going on here? is a very powerful case of anger and envy. And we'll see that as the the text goes on, and we'll see how it works as the text goes on. So so actually, uh, what's going to happen next is, um, you can ask me about it over coffee, or if you're watching this online, you can send me an email. Maybe I could have a chat with you. I'm not going to defend it. I, I believe the next bit happened. I don't think there's anything problematic with the next thing happening. Well, what happens next? Let's look. Verse 19. So the, prophet, the apostles are arrested. They're put in public prison. Verse 19. But during the night, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. He's, the angels obviously also uh, made the guards fall asleep or whatever. And said, the angel says to the apostles, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Uh, this life. And that, that's really interesting because it shows that one of the ways that uh, the early Christians understood themselves is that they were followers of the life. And it's really important to understand that that's what Christianity offers us. It offers us life. It offers us a perspective to be thankful for the gift of life for ourselves, the gift of life for others, It's a way for us to understand that uh, when Jesus comes into our lives, that what he offers us is life, that uh, we begin to get his life, eternal life, life of the future in our lives right now, and that when we die, uh, it is not the end of us, but that we walk into greater life. In a sense, a greater life overwhelms and swallows us. From the world's point of view, death has swallowed us, but when we are in Christ, life has swallowed us, and we enter into greater life. And, um, and that, that's, that's what the message is. Now, what happens as a result? Now, this whole bit, by the way, is filled, the whole story is filled with irony and sort of sarcasm. In fact, Monty Python would be the perfect people to act this out. Uh, they would probably nail it perfectly uh, in terms of getting how the different the soldiers and others are reacting to everything that happens, and and, then just see what happens next. So the angels let them out, verse 21, and when they heard this, that's the apostles, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find the apostles in the prison. So they returned and reported, 
<laughs> we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened the doors, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Um, are, are teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers uh, went and brought them, that's the apostles, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. Now, um, you know, as I said, I'm not... Uh, um, well, here's the, um, here's the impact of envy and anger in our lives. Um, when you are filled with envy and anger, when I am filled with envy or anger, I am not interested in the truth. And I'm not interested in justice. Now, I, I would deny it, when I'm caught with envy, and I would deny it when I'm caught up with anger. But the fact of the matter is, as we can see it in others, when they're filled with envy or when they're filled with anger, that their interest in the truth vanishes. As envy goes up, anger goes up, a concern for truth goes down. It goes down and down and down. You'd think that what the high priest is going to ask the, uh, the, the guys is, uh, how do you get out? And they said, uh, well, an angel got us out. I mean, these guys are in the religious business. They just say, like, really, an angel? My like, gosh. Like, maybe I should reconsider my anger. <laughs> or, or maybe they could say, uh, wow. I mean, that's a bit of a justification that maybe God's on your side and I, we should maybe not have arrested you. Uh, you know, maybe we should reconsider that whole resurrection thing. Could we go back? I'd just like to ask you some questions. Like, I'm just really stuck now with the fact that you got out in such a fashion. And uh, um, I, did, I, we haven't been able to find the body, Peter and, and all. Like, and, and so did you really see Jesus? Like, you really didn't steal the body? Did you really see Jesus alive? Did you really see him ascend into heaven? Like, and what about that thing with Pentecost? Did, did that really happen? I, we've heard rumors that, like, there was something that looked like fire and there's the wind. And, like, did that really happen? And, and you know, we, we want to, obviously, we, we want to have people worship the God of Israel. And you keep saying that the God of Israel is the one doing all of these things. And, and you preach with a type of power that we just don't have. And you have an attractiveness that we don't have. Like, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, no, they could have done all of those things, uh, but they are filled with envy. They are filled with anger. They would be happier to have the apostles destroyed and people be less observant Jews than for them to thrive. They'd be happy to see these Christians destroyed, even if it means less people come to the temple than before because they're filled with envy. And envy wants to tear the other down. Anger wants to tear the other down. And envy and anger aren't concerned with the truth. And you see this perfectly modeled 
in the story, look at the question that he asks in verse 28. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, there's no law that says you can't do these things. The only law is, I'm the boss. I have the, str- I have the hold of power. You guys are nobodies. Do what I say. And you see, the, and see, here's the other thing about the power of this story. Look, what did they say again? You're trying to make it look like we had this person killed? Well, actually, they did have this person killed. Like, that's the truth. You see, and see, once again, this is not a story where we other people. I bet every one of us would have a friend or a husband or a wife who would say to us that there had been times in our lives when we've been wrong or done something and we've denied it, refused to acknowledge it was true. It's a human problem. Some of us are maybe far more prone to it than others. And we're definitely far more prone to others to do this when we're filled with envy or anger. And we get completely and utterly blind to what we've in fact actually done. And and you see, this is also going to be one of the things which, which helps to show the real beauty and the wonder of the gospel. Because you see, if, if you being made right with God, or if you trying to reach your ideal self, or if you trying to reach these types of, you know, that, that, that you know, we want to have the, the applause and the acclaim and, and the, the well-doing of, of people thinking certain things about us, and, and if that's our goal, then to have people point out the things in our lives which are wrong, it's, it's sort of an unbearable type of thing because we need to achieve and we need to maintain these things And it's only when the gospel helps us to understand that God knows every bad thing we've done and still he loves us and he loves us. We're going to see this in a moment. And that starts to begin as the gospel becomes more true and real to our heart. A place for me to actually say, well, actually it is me, O Lord, who did that. It's still going against our human nature, our fallen human nature, but there begins to be a place that we can stand and and see ourselves as God has seen us and both see the grace that he's offered to us in Christ, which is, is, is so deep and so broad and extensive that everything has been for, every sin has been forgiven. And then maybe to be able to say, well, actually, I, I, I did kill. I was responsible for killing Jesus. I, I was. And, and see, one of the things which is so, you want to see one of the things which is so wonderful about the gospel. Look what, look what happens. Here we see what's so wonderful about the, many of the things that are so wonderful about the gospel. How does Peter respond? Verse 29, he says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, no othering, you, 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 you guys who are, your Jewish people like us, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your God and, and my God. Um, he raised Jesus. He raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him, verse 31, at his right hand as leader or prince and savior. And, and here's this wonderful thing. He's saying this to the men who literally were responsible for the killing of Jesus. Now, one of the things every well-instructed Christian has to understand is that it could have been my hands that nailed Jesus' hands to the cross. It could have been me who put the crown of thorns on his brow. That I am complicit. That was me doing it. But even these men who literally were responsible for his death. Peter says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's saying it to the men who actually killed Jesus. You meant this for great harm, but actually God vindicated Jesus and he rose Jesus and he brought Jesus made Jesus resurrected. And all of this was done so you could have repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Um, I mean, this is a very powerful thing. And in fact, as well as that, here there's another thing. Look at verse 30 again. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now, those of you who know the Bible a little bit well know that what, there, what happened is that the death that uh, these people conspired with the Romans to do was a death that by the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, was a cursed death. And, and this is profound good news. I don't know, probably some of you even here today, and if not right at this moment, at times in your life, and if not us right now or times in our life, there are people we know who walk around feeling as if they're cursed. Their, their failure in marriage, their failures maybe in singleness or in parenting or in their economic life, maybe because of the color of your skin, your educational level, your caste, if you're in India, that you things that you've done wrong, ways that you've been shamed or embarrassed by others. Um, You feel like you're under a curse. There's something cursed about you. And it's a very powerful human experience. And I don't wish it upon any of you, anybody. I, I I have lived under that feeling. And this is profoundly, profoundly good news for those of us who feel or have gone through a season or are going through a season of feeling cursed. Because the message of the cross is, you know, whether the the curses are, it's whether that's actually true or it's just something imaginary, but the curse that was on you when Jesus dies on the cross, he, he didn't do anything so it's, he's taking your curse upon himself. And as he takes your curse upon himself, he's extending to you blessedness. He's extending to you life. Undeserved blessedness, undeserved life is offered to you. 
so if you here or you there are watching this and you feel under a curse, I want to tell you that that curse, if you put your hands in the hands of Jesus, or if you have done that in the past and you just haven't realized it, that curse is on him. He took that curse because he loves you. He loves you. And he offers you blessedness, undeserved blessedness. And so here it says when God, in verse 31, that God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is a very, very powerful image. Like how can he give repentance? Well, all of us have had experiences similar to feeling cursed, and this sometimes be part of the reason why we feel cursed, is that when we have wronged somebody, and this goes the other way too, by the way, but I'm going to use the example of us, we have wronged somebody, and the other person shuts us out, shuts us out shuts us out forever, forever. There's no amount of amendment of life, no amount of saying you're sorry, no amount of reparations, no amount of counseling will make that other person forgive you or make them interested in having anything to do with you again for the rest of their lives. You've been completely and utterly shut out. And if we love them, we wish we could repent. We wish we could repent. I mean, we, we can repent, but repent is, is actually going to work because the other person will say, you know, I'm, I'm, open, I'm open to that. I'm offering that as an op- option to you. And so what we see here is is uh, this, this phrase, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, because they go together. There's no point to say, yeah, yeah, I'll, look, I'll allow you to repent. And then once you repent, they say, I'm joking. I'm never going to forgive you, <laughs> you worm. <laughs> no, there's the, this dual promise, and it's so powerful and so beautiful. It's so emotionally beautiful and powerful. That's what I wish that people outside the faith would understand, that as you begin to understand the gospel in texts like this, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And so one of the ways that we can understand what the gospel is, it's the gospel is that Jesus comes to to George, he comes to you, and he says, I'm going to offer you a coin of unfathomable, unfathomable value. And, 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 and I, it, it, it means you'll be reconciled to me. It means you have life. It means you're, it, it means you're forgiven. It, it, it means you have the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm offering you this thing. And, and when it, and it says that you have to obey, obey just means that God is making this offer to you. I'm going to give you this coin of, of unbelievable value. I just hope you take it. I want you to take it. You know? And so, so we do. And when we get the coin, we look at the coin, and on one side of the coin it says... Repent and believe and trust into Jesus the Messiah. That's what it says on one side of the coin. Repent and believe and trust into Jesus the Messiah. And then we look at the other side of the coin. And the other side of the coin says your sins are forgiven and life is given to you in Jesus the Messiah. Just one coin. We take that coin in our hands of unfathomable value. And that's what the coin says on both sides.
You see, the teaching of envy and the teacher of anger, to, to, um, to play with a modern slogan, there's a modern slogan that you do you. But the Bible says, you blind you. You blind you through your envy and your anger and refusal to repent. And one of the things which is so wonderful about the gospel, you see, you have here the picture of the opposite of envy and anger. Envy wants to pull down. Jesus comes down to lift you up. Envy wants you to, what leads you to pull down others. Jesus calls you to look up to him and by looking up to him to see goodness and beauty and excellence in others. That anger makes you want to hurt and kill. But Jesus takes that proper anger that God has towards the wrongdoing you've done and that we have towards wrongdoing that's done and he, he has that he has that anger fall on him so that we might know life and love. And our anger begins to see that that allows us to look at why other people might be angry at ourselves and why we're even angry at ourselves and to understand that Jesus has dealt with all that's really properly anger causing by having all that sin fall on himself and we begin to have a place where we can so hear the scriptures in light of Jesus that rather than having you blind you we can see that the scriptures bring light they bring a mirror for me to see myself and I can start to see myself And I can only do that in the comfort that anything I see in myself, which is so ugly and so terrible and so deserving of shame and anger, that Jesus knew that about me when he died for me on the cross. That there's nothing in my past and nothing in my future that Jesus didn't know about when he died on the cross for me. And still he loved me and loves me and died for me. And so it's not just that I have a story that changes how I can understand myself and begin to see myself, but I have Jesus with me. I have the Holy Spirit with me to bring their light and their truth into my life. And I can begin to look and acknowledge these things and begin to accept that I don't have to be ashamed and I'm not cursed, that that fell on him. My shame fell on him, that I might have honor in life. And that's the beauty and the power of the gospel. That's the beauty and the power of the gospel. There's a text in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's not going to be on your screen uh, because I didn't think of it early enough to send it. And it goes like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's partially by the witnesses we learn in the Bible, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in Christ, our destiny is to be before the throne of God above, without shame, without cursedness, without sin, made righteous in him. And nothing, nothing can shake us from his hand when we put our trust in him. I invite you to stand, please. Bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is a mirror and a window. We thank you, Father, that it's not just that your Bi- the Bible says that we're always exactly like these people caught up with envy and anger and untruths, that sometimes, Father, as well, we are able to speak the truth. We are able to bear witness. And we give you thanks and praise, Father, that when we bear witness to Jesus, it's not just us bearing witness, but the Holy Spirit bearing witness as well. That it's not just up to our ability to, 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 to persuade uh, or, or the power or, of our eloquence or the lack of it. And we thank and praise you, Father, for Jesus and what he did and for his mighty death upon the cross and mighty resurrection and his great love for us. And we ask, Father, that you would make these truths more and more real to us so that we might begin to see us as we really are, that your word would be that mirror into our lives, but not just a mirror, that it would also be that window by which we might understand how just beautiful and loving you are and how beautiful and loving Christ is and how beautiful and powerful the gospel is, and that that we might, Father, live out of that beauty, that we might walk in the beauty of holiness after we have put our hands in the hands of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And we ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.